Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And a very good morning. Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa. Voice of the African Renaissance. We're live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz. And that's on the 41 meter band across Southern Africa. 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band of Far West Africa. I'm Jazarad. In the studio with your news coming up is Anne Musa. Your final economic report from Tabisa Lehoko in about 45 minutes from now. And Tami Kuza will close the show with uh, your latest sports update. Our top stories in this hour. Nigeria wraps up the presidential election campaign. Who will it be? Lesotho's new cabinet to be sworn in today. In economics in battle, South African power utility ESCOM receives full support from the government. And in sports, Nigeria offers coach Stephen Keshi a new contract. Now with the news, here's Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Campaigning in Nigeria's presidential elections wrapped up yesterday with the two leading candidates delivering their final messages to supporters before the vote. President Goodluck Jonathan is running against former military ruler Muhammadu Buhari in what looks set to be the closest presidential race since military rule ended in 1999. Jonathan Nenbahuri... signed a pledge of no violence in January and yesterday repeated their commitment to peaceful elections with the campaign due to formally end at midnight. Meanwhile, head of the United Nations Office for West Africa, Mohammed Ibn Chambas, has urged Nigerian leaders and their supporters to refrain from violence during general elections tomorrow. Presidential and parliamentary elections were originally scheduled for the 14th of February, but were postponed by the Electoral Commission, citing violence by the Boko Haram militants in the northeastern part of the country. UN Deputy Spokesperson Fahan Haq says Chambas has been travelling to different parts of Nigeria to meet with candidates as well as government and electoral officials. Mr. Chambas conveyed to all interlocutors the Secretary-General's message for peaceful, free and credible elections. He urged all stakeholders to strive towards achieving this objective. In particular, he called on the security apparatus to be above board and to demonstrate professionalism in discharging its duties during and after elections. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has apologized to the country's citizens for the past wrongs that both his government and past regimes have committed. He told Parliament during his State of the Nation address that time had come to bring closure to the country's painful past. Kenyatta mentioned the 2007 to 2008 post-election violence, the 1984 massacre of hundreds of Kenyan Somalis and unresolved murders, among other historical injustices. Kenya's Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission report had recommended that the president apologize to the public. The report names the president and his deputy as being among those suspected of planning and financing Kenya's 2007-2008 to post-election violence in which more than 1,000 people died. 
A powerful explosion in Manhattan, New York, has caused two buildings to collapse, resulting in a fire that shut down blocks of the city. Terrorism has been ruled out by authorities as preliminary investigations revealed the incident was likely caused by a gas leak, the second such explosion in New York in just over a year. Several injuries were reported with as many as 250 firefighters battling the ensuing fire that spread to four buildings in total on the corner of 2nd Avenue and 7th Street. Sherwin Bryce-Peace reports. Plumes of smoke, massive flames and chaos were the scenes that immediately followed the mid-afternoon explosion in the East Village of Manhattan as bloodied victims were carried away by onlookers as emergency personnel sealed off the area. Twelve people were injured, three critically. Information that was later confirmed by the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio. Residents of the affected buildings clearly distraught but unable to get near their homes due to the ferocity of the blaze. The city has set up a Red Cross station in the city to assist those directly affected. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Okay, if you've just joined in, welcome to the show. This is Africa Rise and Shine. I'm, Ch- I'm Jazz Arad. Campaigning wound up to a close in Nigeria's presidential elections on Thursday with the two leading candidates delivering their final messages to support it before the crunch votes. Nigerians go to the polls tomorrow and whoever the electorate vote in has several challenges ranging from insecurity, corruption, high inflation and unemployment. One pressing need for the country's economy is electricity. Half of the country's population has no access to electricity. And those who have experienced long blackouts at the moment, Africa's largest oil producer is facing an acute fuel shortage, which is crippling transport and businesses. Sarah Kimani reports from Lagos. At a tailoring shop in Obalinde in Lagos, 36-year-old Yahaya Ahmed and his employees are hard at work. It is a race against time, not just to beat the client's deadlines, but to save on fuel. Like many businesses in Nigeria, his business is powered through a generator. Nigeria suffers daily blackouts. Power generation companies supply just 3,800 megawatts for a population of 150 million people. I started to work like, like 10 years ago. So I do my business, but the problem is no light in Nigeria, with the use gen, with the use petrol. When you go to buy through petrol, before you see the petrol, you go hard. It costs. He spends several hours in queues waiting for his turn to buy fuel. At the moment, the country is facing a massive fuel shortage. Unreliable power supply hampers Nigeria's competitiveness. Alternative power generation is a fixed cost for anyone who sets up a business here. Now, now every day I will buy to the, every day I will go to the police station and buy the petrol, like 1,000 lira or 1,002. So I saw my cloth like two cloth or three cloth foil was finished. Long queues are formed outside petrol stations, and despite Nigeria being one of the world's top crude oil exporters, the country depends on fuel imports. 
the West African nation's four state-owned refineries are not able to meet the country's demand. The Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation has asked citizens to avoid panic buying, saying the shortage is as a result of residents stocking up ahead of the polls. Many, however, blame the shortage on an inefficient government. The challenge, we need change in this country. Some people are be challenged. We need to change. Maybe another party or another government don't go change the, this rule. Because we, then they rule us, the another party, then they rule us like 16 years. We don't see anything. Both candidates have pledged to improve electricity-related infrastructure. But until then, businessmen like Ahmed must dig deeper into their pockets if they are to stay afloat. Sarah Kimani, Lagos. The swearing-in of members of the Upper House of the Lesotho Parliament, the Senate, has heightened anticipation for today's swearing of the Cabinet. Nine of the 33 members of the Senate are political nominees of Prime Minister Pakalita Mosisilili's coalition government expected to become ministers. They come from Mosisili's Democratic Congress, Motejua Metsing's Lesotho Congress for Democracy, LCD, and three other coalition partners. While the politicians remain secretive about which portfolios they've been earmarked for, the newly elected President of the Senate and King Letsi III's brother, Prince Siiso, says he is clear he wants reforms for the king to have more power. Ntakwane Ngatano reports from Maseru. The Senate is the upper house of the Parliament of Lesotho with 33 members including chiefs and nine members from the new coalition government. The nine are expected to be part of Musisidi's cabinet. They say they're related to serve their people but they were not willing to disclose in what capacity. Excited, scared, humbled, <laughs> but very excited. I have no idea. It doesn't mean that when you are in Senate you are destined for a cabinet post. So. The newly elected president of the Senate is the king's brother, His Royal Highness Prince Seiso Bering Seiso. His career is illustrious, including serving as High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. He welcomed the members and called on them to stay above the fray of politics. We have come from a very acrimonious uh, election, pre-election period that we were very fractured as a nation. My vehement wish is that in my tenure as president, we can begin to work towards a nation that is at peace with itself, a nation that is comfortable in its own skin, so that every citizen of this country feels a sense of entitlement to the proceedings, the wealth and well-being of this country. Prince Seiso makes no secret that the king wants to have more power. It was King Letizia III who called on President Jacob Zuma and Sadak to intervene when the country faced a political and security crisis last year. His position for now remains ceremonial. Prince Seiso Seiso says this may change. We are likely to see a process where we are going to embark aggressively as a house on a process of constitutional reform. That constitutional reform may or may not entail further powers or may entail specifically a clearer vision and a clearer place as to where His Majesty ought to be sitting in the proceedings of the governance of his realm. A member of former Prime Minister Tabani's party, the Obasutu Convention, who now sit on the opposition benches, Futo Hotlo, has been elected Deputy President of the Senate. This raised speculation that the Senate is dominated by the opposition 
and may try to hinder government's agenda. The Senate's role is endorsing legislation and policies crafted by the National Assembly. Hotler refused to be drawn on whether he will use this to his advantage. I would rather we talk about uh, the duties of the, of the Senate. And as I've indicated, I would reiterate that nothing changes. I'll execute my duties in the Senate as required. Prime Minister Musisidi's coalition enjoys a slim majority with 65 of the 120 members of the National Assembly. Transformation Resource Center Sikwane Peshwane says Musisidi has nothing to fear with an opposition-dominated Senate. He says constitutionally it is a toothless dog. Sikwane Peshwane. It, the Constitution still gives the National Assembly the right uh, not to take proposal or advice from the Senate. So... The Constitution actually still gives the the nation much powers to do as it it, it feels that it's okay with it. They have no powers to initiate the the policy legislations. Uh, Because of that, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be possible for for them to hinder the government. uh, agenda or government uh, legislation or proposals. The nine Senate members from Musisidi's party and coalition partners are well-known personalities in Lesotho with past public service experience and business people. Musisidi has had to play a delicate balancing act to appease all coalition partners and allies. His final decision will be known Friday morning. I'm Takwanangadan in Maseru, Lesotho. In his final briefing to the United Nations Security Council before vacating his post, the United Nations Middle East envoy has warned that the failure to advance peace between Israel and Palestine could see an outcome of a one-state solution. Robert Seri also indicated that the only way to achieve the international goal of a two-state solution would be if the Security Council took the lead in creating a new peace architecture. He reiterated the long-standing view that continued Israeli settlement activity in the West Bank and East Jerusalem could not be reconciled with a negotiated two-state solution. Sherwin Bryce Priest reports yet again. It was Robert Seri's final moment in the Council as Special Coordinator for the peace process after seven years in the post, warning that the interplay between failed peace negotiations, the situation in Gaza, and the role of the United Nations could produce a dangerous outcome. As I have noted in my briefings to you, since May 2012, the parties are heading towards an outcome which I can only describe as a one-state reality. As the parties do not appear at this point ready to recommence negotiations, we should not rush them back to the table. If indeed we believe that they do continue to seek an outcome of two neighboring states living in peace and security, but are unable themselves at this juncture to agree on a meaningful framework to resume negotiations. The international community should seriously consider presenting such a framework for negotiations. His briefing comes after the Palestinian Liberation Organization took a decision earlier this month to suspend all security cooperation with Israel, while the latter continued to withhold Palestinian tax revenues amounting to over $400 million, deepening the Palestinian Authority's financial crisis. Seri also warned that continued settlement activity may kill the very possibility of reaching a two-state solution. Upon leaving this position, I cannot but express an overriding feeling that I have been part of a peace process in which a can is kicked down an endless road. During the past seven years, three U.S.-led peace initiatives remained inconclusive and did not bring us any closer to the urgently needed political foundation for a Palestinian state as part of a two-state solution. 
This is why the remarkable progress achieved in Palestinian state building, pursued vigorously under the leadership of President Abbas and former Prime Minister Fayyad, has started to turn into a failed success. He also called the Security Council to account. It remains the primary responsibility of this council to play its role in developing a new peace architecture for resolving the conflict at long last. Hasn't the time come, Mr. President, for the council to lead? Palestinian Ambassador Riyad Mansour had an ominous response regarding the possibility of a one-state solution. If we are moving in the direction of uh, one-state reality, then we would be uh, living and noticing a massive dose of apartheid experience which failed in South Africa, and I am confident that it will not succeed in uh, our region. Council diplomats have shown a growing appetite for a resolution that could push the parties back to negotiations, while the recent tense relationship between Israel and the United States has called into question whether the U.S. would withdraw its use of the veto on resolutions pertaining to its ally. Israel Ambassador Ron Prosor. I uh, can tell you that the bond between the United States and Israel is uh, strong and continue, will continue to be strong despite everything that is being uh, said, especially in the media. Nikolai Mladenov, the current special representative of the Secretary General to Iraq, will replace Robert Siri as special coordinator for the Middle East peace process. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonan. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one, one people. people. Channel, Channel Africa. Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The media. Okay, well, coming up, we've got our news headlines at 8.30. And, of course, uh, we've got our economic report just after that uh, with uh, Tabisa Lohoko. And thereafter, our final sports update with Tami Kuza. Police and lawyers from Zimbabwe's largest mobile phone operator raided the offices of online news agency The Source on Thursday in a dispute over stories published by the agency earlier this year. The lawyers, accompanied by the sheriff's department and technology experts, sifted through staff communications and retrieved emails and documents. The police stood watch throughout the proceedings. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. There is growing concern over failure by the Zimbabwean authorities to respect media freedoms Thursday. This follows a raid at the offices of the source, an online publication affiliated to the international media agency Reuters. Thursday's raid was instigated because of a fierce legal battle between the source and Econet Wireless affiliated Stuart Bank a few weeks ago. In the story, President Robert Mugabe's nephew, Philip Chiangwa, is alleged to have failed to service a 2.1 million US dollar loan and the bank requested for compensation in the form of land. The other stories say the Zimbabwean government borrowed 30 million US dollar 
from the Econet Wireless with a bid to ease the cash crunch. The raid has instilled fear in the entire Zimbabwean media, media practitioners have said. Lawyer for the giant Econet Wireless, Tinashe Zindi, refused to comment. So I'm not in a position to comment. But why are you here? Well, there's a provisional order. Uh, you can liaise with the, the sources, legal practitioners for that. Oh, sorry, I have to attend to that. Chris Mike, lawyer for the source, explained there's this ordeal. What has just happened at the source um, was the invasion of a newsroom uh, by Econet Wireless and Stuart Bank, uh, and they were proceeding in terms of a court order from the High Court of Zimbabwe. Uh, in effect, therefore, they were enforcing a provisional order which was issued by the High Court of Zimbabwe uh, through ex parte proceedings, meaning that those proceedings uh, were executed without an opportunity by the source and its reporters to make an input uh, into the sort of order that was um, secured by Econet Bank, uh, by Econet Wireless and Stuart Bank. Mike is concerned this this raid was an infringement of the media freedom protecting journalists from revealing their story sources. What this therefore means is that after they went through the computers um, of um, the source and going through their drawers, they retrieved uh, a number of correspondences and documents um, which documents and correspondences pertain to, uh, to, to communications between the source and its sources. That information is now with the Registrar General, uh, the, with the Registrar of the High Court, and we await the confirmation of the provisional order. Zimbabwe Union of Journalists President Foster Dongozi condemned the raid as a sad moment to access information uh, this is a very sad day for democracy this, this is a very sad day for freedom of expression this is a very sad moment for for access to information particularly given the fact that uh, we are only a month and some some days before we commemorate world press freedom day uh, what is uh, particularly shocking is that the courts uh, the High Court has uh, reserved judgment on the matter, on the issue, and uh, we are all totally, absolutely appalled by the developments uh, in which uh, the organization has harnessed the powers of the law to trample on the rights of journalists and to urinate on press freedom. The raid took place because of a High Court application by Stuart Bank, which did not give the source a chance to respond in the courts. Harare lawyer Jacob Mafume explains the popular Anton Pillar British case which was used to raid the source. The order is named after the 1975 English case of Anton Pillar and Manufacturing Processes Limited. Uh, it refers to a situation where they need to protect certain evidence, where they need to make sure that certain evidence is not destroyed or where they need to ask the uh, applicant, uh, the, the defendant or respondent in that matter, certain questions which he ought to answer. This application is done on an ex parte basis, or in other words, it is done without notice to the 
to the respondents because they will then destroy the information that is required. It is most often used in copyright cases. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Now, the 19 countries that form the common market for Eastern Southern Africa have begun their meetings at the African Union headquarters in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. Ministers from the economic bloc are looking at increasing trade benefits in the region by relying on partners to fund more programs that will ease trade amongst member states. Coletta Wanjohi has this report. Ministers from the Common Market for East and Southern Africa, COMESA, are meeting in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. This is ahead of the COMESA summit that is expected to take place on 30th and 31st March, still in Addis Ababa. Issues that the ministers have raised include the improvement of the trade amongst the 19 countries that are member states, by, among other things, eliminating the non-trade barriers that have existed for years. This includes the traditional clearing system of import and exports that needed the transactions to be done through other countries. Sindiso Ndema Ngwenya, the executive secretary of COMESA, says that with the improved business climate in the COMESA region, the value of trade is bound to increase. Because the requirement traditionally has been that you need a first-class bank to confirm letters of credit. Some of them are irrevocable letters of credit. But the clearinghouse, thanks to our central bank governors and our ministers of finance, has done away with that. And uh, this year alone, as I'm talking, uh, almost three quarters of a billion of transactions have now gone through the clearinghouse. We expect that by the end of this year, we can uh, ramp up that uh, to, or to maybe two or three billion out of the 10 billion import trade that Comesa has. Comesa is now looking at infrastructural development in the region to a tune of up to $10 billion. The economic bloc is looking at the partnership of non-member partners to achieve this fund. The executive secretary for Comesa, Sindiso Ndemangwenya, says that the European Union has been funding up to 70% of Comesa projects. In the 11th EDF, the 11th EDF, the European Development Fund, which will be from 2016 to 2020, it is one that includes uh, Comesa, the East African Community, the Southern African Development Community, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, and also the IOC. That the total envelope for that is 1.32 euro, sorry, 1.3 billion euro for that, out of which 600 million euro will be for supporting infrastructure. And the innovation in the 11th EDF is that that 600 million will be used to leverage and blend with the European Investment Bank. So we are not looking at uh, 600 million euros, we are looking at anything that can go up to 10 billion dollars. Technical committees on different trade issues are continuing with their consultation as the ministers are expected to deliberate more on recommendations which have so far been made, recommendations which they will hand over to the presidents from the Comesa region who will be meeting later this month in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Koleto Njoye for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Channel Africa listener, please note that as from Monday the 30th of March 2015, the English frequency to Eastern Central Africa between 0500 and 0600 Central African time changes to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band. I repeat, the frequency will change to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band.
Also changing is the English frequency to Southern Africa between 0700 and 0800 Central African time. It is now changing to 6145 kilohertz in the 41 meter band. I'll repeat that. The broadcast to Southern Africa will change to 6145 kilohertz in the 41 meter band. Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. Today is Friday, March 27th. Good to have you with me. The 86th day of 2015. There's about 275 days left in the year. Now, today in 1995, South African President Nelson Mandela dismissed his estranged wife, Winnie Mandela, from the government. The decision to expel her was unanimously hailed by parliamentary parties as well as the African National Congress and its alliance structures. Let's listen to President Nelson Mandela. As President of the Republic, I have relieved Namsa Mawini Mandela of her position as Deputy Minister of Arts, Culture, Science and Technology. This decision has been taken both in the interest of good government and to ensure the higher standards of discipline among leading officials of the government of national unity. I have taken this decision after much reflection, given that Comrade Winnie Mandela has in the past played an important role in the struggle against apartheid, I hope that this action will help the former Deputy Minister to review and seek to improve on her own conduct in position of responsibility. That's former South African President Nelson Mandela speaking on this day, the 27th of March in 1995. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Okay, time for our news headlines. Here's Anne Moose. A very good morning to you. Campaigning in Nigeria's presidential elections wrapped up yesterday with the two leading candidates delivering their final messages to supporters before the vote. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta apologizes to the country's citizens for the past wrongs that both his government and past regimes have committed. And the international community is urged to greatly increase humanitarian and development assistance to Cameroon, which is hosting thousands of refugees. And those are the stories making headlines. Okay, well, before we get on to our next story, today in history, 27th of March, a couple of things did have happen. It was in 1994, on this day, South Africa is readmitted to the International Olympic Committee. <coughs> Pardon on condition it complies within 30 days to terms laid down by the IOC. The terms included the abolition of apartheid laws, the non-racial unification of sports bodies, and normalization of relations with sports bodies elsewhere in Africa. Of course, South Africa competed in the Atlanta 96 Games. 
Also, South, uh, in 1993, multi-party elections are held to end military rules in Lesotho. And, of course, uh, South Africa withdraws its military forces from Angola in 1976 on this day. There you go. Moving on. A powerful explosion in Manhattan, New York, has caused two buildings to collapse, resulting in a fire that shut down blocks of the city. Terrorism was immediately ruled out by authorities as preliminary investigations revealed the incident was likely caused by a gas leak, the second such explosion in New York in just over a year. Several injuries were reported with as many as 250 firefighters battling the ensuing fire that spread to four buildings in total on the corner of 2nd Avenue and 7th Street. Sherwin Bryce Prees has this report. <laughs> Plumes of smoke, massive flames and chaos were the scenes that immediately followed the mid-afternoon explosion in the East Village of Manhattan as bloodied victims were carried away by onlookers as emergency personnel sealed off the area. Twelve people were injured, three critically. Information that was later confirmed by the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio. Preliminary evidence suggests a gas-related explosion. That investigation is ongoing. The initial uh, impact appears to have been caused by plumbing and gas work that was occurring inside 121 2nd Avenue. FDNY and all our first responders have responded. It is now a seven-alarm incident for FDNYs. They've been battling heavy fire conditions. So far have contained the fire to those four buildings. Residents of the affected buildings clearly distraught, but unable to get near their homes due to the ferocity of the blaze. The city has set up a Red Cross station in the city to assist those directly affected. This is a a complex and difficult operation they're mounting here, obviously doing everything they can uh, to search for anyone who still may be in those buildings, but also to ensure there's not spread of fire. Uh, to the surrounding buildings. And FDNY, as usual, is doing an extraordinary job handling this very, very difficult situation. The city's fire commissioner, Daniel Nigro, said his members reacted swiftly and arrived on the scene within minutes of the blast. Our members arrived in less than three minutes to a, uh, a, a, a scene they certainly didn't expect. The scene of this explosion blew the front of 121 across the street. They, for the first 15 minutes, before the building started to collapse, made extremely dangerous searches of these buildings to search for any victims and uh, were forced out by the subsequent collapse of 123 and 121. Witness Isaac Barr was practicing his saxophone when he heard a huge bang. I saw the flames and I saw it when it was really, the fire was roaring, so, and I felt the boom in my house and, you know, shortly after when I got to the street, Someone texted me and said, um, you know, are you okay? Because they know I live in the neighborhood. But, yeah, it was pretty scary. I mean, what, did you, what did you think it was? I had no idea. I mean, I grew up, I, I went to school two blocks from Ground Zero. So, you know, I, I, I thought it was maybe an explosion or, or something, you know, a, a crash or something. It didn't, it was, I felt it, and, and the sound that it made was too big for it to be a car crash. Justin Chavez was also close when the explosion occurred. I just saw a huge cloud of smoke coming over one of the buildings and I came closer and there were people pushed back. And that was sort of like the initial, right after it happened, they were telling us to go back. We couldn't go in any further. 
A similar gas explosion in Harlem in March last year killed eight people. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Farmers in the Central African Republic are in urgent need of seeds and tools for the upcoming planting season in April to prevent further deterioration of the livelihoods of vulnerable populations in the conflict-stricken country. Some 1.5 million people are currently food insecure in the country, and this figure is likely to rise if immediate support is not provided. The World World Food Programme, WFP, is working with the Food and Agriculture Organisation to help meet the needs of vulnerable people. To find out more on this, Jane Matabula spoke to Francis Kennedy from WFP. The main concerns at the moment for humanitarian organisations who are working in the Central African Republic is this volatility and ongoing insecurity and the effect that that is having on people there and their needs. Particularly in the farming area, we are moving in towards the planting season and there was the alarm raised by the Food and Agriculture Organisation that the desperate need there for many of these farmers who have often been displaced, many people in the Central African Republic with the localised conflict there has been, have moved many times. If they are at their fields, they don't have the money required to buy those seeds. And that needs to happen because at the moment it's estimated that one and a half million people are what we call food insecure, means they don't really know where their next meal is coming from. But that number could increase greatly if we don't see a successful planting season, we'll be seeing a worse situation further down the line. So those are the concerns that we're facing at the moment. Now, the World Food Programme, along with partners, what are you planning to do to try and respond to the needs of farmers and ensure that they do manage to plant during the planting season? Well, the plans are essentially to try and reach some 150,000 households that are affected by the crisis there, farmers and host families, and ensure that they have not just seeds but also tools that are required to start the planting season, which is coming up in April. And alongside that, the World Food Programme will be looking at providing some rations alongside the seed distribution. So that means that if families and households are getting this, they will also, along with the seeds and tools, receive some food supplies and rations of rice and oil. And lastly, Francis, um, speaking of challenges, we know that funding is essential for aid agencies to be able to provide assistance. Now, is the WFP managing to mobilize enough funds? We have found people have been very supportive, our donors have, but at the moment it's tough. There are many conflicting or various emergencies around the world. You need to think about South Sudan or you need to think about Syria and all the Syrian refugees. So these are tough times for donor governments, but we are confident that our donors will continue to support us on the Central African Republic because it's really important that it's not a country that's forgotten. It's a country that's going through a very tense and difficult situation. Many, many people displaced, very profound humanitarian needs, the chance to try and restart things and the support is needed for that. 
Now, the practice of eating locally grown food has changed the lives of 250,000 people in Senegal. That's according to IFAD, International Fund for Agricultural Development. Many people in the West African country currently rely on expensive imported food. IFAD says that growing their own food has not only significantly helped the population through what is known as the hungry season, it has also provided jobs for thousands of people. James here reports. It's breakfast time in Niakar village in Senegal. Today there's enough millet for the children to eat as much as they want. But food hasn't always been this plentiful. In this arid area, temperatures are high and rainfall is low. And farmers like Kumba Nofinsene have struggled to grow millet here. And with most Senegalese preferring imported food, the millet they do produce is also difficult to sell. But this year, everything has changed. Our production has more than doubled, almost tripled. Before, we could not even get to one ton of millet. But now we produce two or three tons per year. And this is more than we can eat in a single year. So we sell the surplus to pay for other things we need. These changes in Kumba's life are part of a bigger government initiative known as the Agricultural Value Chain Support Program funded by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, or IFAD, among its goals to increase rural incomes, create jobs, and reduce the six-month hungry season, all based on a very simple idea, developing a taste for local foods, as project evaluator Abdoulaye Ba explains. If people consumed what is being produced locally instead of importing rice, the revenues would be reintroduced into the agricultural sector. This would develop agriculture in the area and increase the incomes of the rural households. This, in turn, would improve the economy of the whole country. To bring about these changes, farmers needed encouragement to grow local crops, like this millet. But there is no sense in producing more if there is no one to buy it. So the project team had to work with the surrounding community to encourage them to eat local foods. About 700 women so far have been trained to cook with local crops. Not only are they cheaper and more nutritious than imported rice, they've also provided the inspiration for new businesses. Since the training, many restaurants in this area offer only locally grown food. Restaurant manager Aysa Tusise used to struggle to earn a living. Now local food and recipes not only give her an income, but she sees it as the future for the whole country. This can develop our economy. Our economy cannot grow if we keep importing. We need to consume what we produce here in Senegal. It is much better. And the economy is certainly improving in this area. With a strong local market, Kumba and the other farmers were able to expand their production. Working with the project team, they built a new storehouse, and they can now sell their produce throughout the year without worrying about market fluctuations. With a quality crop and so much surplus to sell, they were able to negotiate regular sales to Nestlé in Ghana. So far, IFAD has worked with 250,000 people in this area to grow, sell and eat local foods. The hungry season here has now decreased from six months to less than one month. More than 5,000 previously unemployed people now have jobs, and farmers are finally earning a living. All this from encouraging people to eat what they grow. Okay, that is uh, <clears throat> Mr. Here for uh, 
for UN Radio. Now, the debate on the colonialism in South Africa's past has been described as important and long overdue. Professor Chris Landsberg from the University of Johannesburg chaired a public dialogue on the legacy of British colonialist Cecil John Rhodes in a gathering held in Cape Town. Chris Mabuya was there. Academics, community leaders and students gathered at the Centre for the Book to take part in a dialogue triggered by University of Cape Town students demanding the removal of Cecil John Rhodes' statue. Professor Chris Landsberg says the debate has been put under the carpet for far too long. It's about time that we at tertiary institutions, in the interest of freedom of speech, because we pride ourselves, lead the charge on these debates within our institutions and ourselves. There's not a single university in this country whose motto doesn't have something about Africa in it, but the curriculum is so Eurocentric, so American. The Mandela Rhodes Foundation, established in 2002 to help South African students with scholarships to study at Oxford University, also came under the spotlight. Emeritus Professor Paul Malem from Rhodes University has questioned the association of the name of the late former President Nelson Mandela and Cecil John Rhodes. On the linking of Mandela and Rhodes, I I think... It was very unfortunate that those two names were linked. What should have happened is that the Mandela Foundation, it should have been called the Mandela Foundation, and the Rhodes Trust should have poured in the millions that it did pour in without having its name attached. Executive Director of the Center for Conflict Resolution, Adike Adebayo, says the students of UCT have opened what he called important debate in the country. I think we just need to pay our appreciation to them and ask them to keep going, keep it intellectual, keep it peaceful, but keep going. There's absolutely, you have, you have right, you have right and you have history and you have numbers on your side. But there were people who felt that UCT was being singled out and others voiced their support for Stellenbosch, Northwest and Pretoria University. I'm Chris Mabuya in Cape Town. Now time for our economic report. Final one of the day. Here is Tabisa Lehuku. Thanks, Jazz. As Nigerians head to the polls tomorrow, their concerns range from insecurity, corruption, high inflation and unemployment. One pressing need for the country's economy is electricity. Half of the country's population has no access to electricity and those who have experienced long blackouts. At the moment, Africa's largest oil producer is facing an acute fuel shortage which is crippling the transport sector. As Sarah Kimani reports, Nigeria must deal with its high-power generation infrastructure if it is to remain competitive. Power generation companies supply 3,800 megawatts for a population of 150 million people. Many businesses in Nigeria are powered through oil generators. At least 60 million Nigerians depend on generators. Those who have electricity suffer daily blackouts lasting up to seven hours. Unreliable power supply 
hampers Nigeria's competitiveness. Alternative power generation is a fixed cost for anyone who sets up a business here. Both frontrunners in the presidential race have pledged to improve electricity-related infrastructure. Until then, businessmen must dig deeper into their pockets to stay afloat. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Nigeria. The South African Chamber of Mines has partnered with the Zambia Association of Manufacturers to identify equipment that can be produced locally in a bid to support local manufacturers. South Africa's chamber says it's been costly for the mining industry to produce some equipment abroad, hence the decision to engage Zambia. The chamber says Zambia is one of the high-cost environments for doing business in the world and that the mining companies ventured into ways of reducing operational costs by partnering with local manufacturers. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has encouraged the stakeholders of Power Utility ESCOM to provide the support for the power utility. Presidential spokesperson Mac Maharaj says Zuma has been kept fully in brief about the developments at ESCOM. Now, the presidency says it will not entertain what it calls rumors and gossip about operations at ESCOM. Yesterday, Opposition Democratic Alliance leader Helen Ziller said the president must explain why he instructed Eskom's chair, Zola Tsuzi, to launch an inquiry into the power utility's performance. The instruction is reported to have led to the suspension of four top executives, including CEO Tsidiso Matona. Maharaj explains. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa leads the government's support efforts. The president wishes to encourage all stakeholders to provide the needed support and to focus on assisting ESCOM and the department to take the country on the route to energy sufficiency. The presidency will not entertain the rumors and gossip about the operations at ESCOM as that will not assist the process at hand, the imperative task of implementing the urgent medium-term plan to enable the country to manage the energy shortages. Zimbabwe government's domestic borrowing has jumped 52% to $544.3 in January year-on-year. The southern African country is struggling with falling revenue from taxes, which stood at $469 million. The central bank says the government had raked up the debt largely through issuing treasury bills to raise money to plug the tax revenue shortfall and settle domestic loans. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, says this is one of the final economic updates on Jazal Rad's show right now. The US dollar trades at 11.89 South African Rand, 9.64 Botswana Pula, 7.54 in Zambia, 0.67 British Pound, 0.91 Euro, Gold 1.202 dollars, Platinum 1.148 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude 5.8 dollars, 2.5 cents a barrel. Economic update. Okay, time for our uh, question of the day. Very briefly, Australia meets New Zealand Sunday's final of the ICC Cricket World Cup in Melbourne. It will be co-host versus co-host. New Zealand will be looking to win their first ever World Cup. On the other hand, Australia will be hoping to make it five. Our question of today is, which team will win the 2015 Cricket World Cup? Email info at channelafrica.coza, SMS plus 2782-332-5905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now time for our final sports update of the sh- day on the show. Here is Tommy Kuza.
So, Tommy, before you do your sports report, uh, which team will win the 2015 Cricket World Cup? Um, I think uh, Australia will make it, judging okay. by the performance yesterday. Fabulous. Yeah. I say New Zealand, <laughs> but best give us your sports update. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. But first, let's start with soccer, where the Nigerian Football Federation, the NFF, has offered Stephen Keshi a new two-year contract as the national team coach. Keshi is set to return to the Super Eagles after a period of uncertainty and losing out in the race for the job of Ghana, South Africa, Equatorial Guinea, Ethiopia, Angola and Burkina Faso. He and the NFF have been back and forth in contract negotiations. Keshi has coached Nigeria since 2011. He won the 2013 Africa Cup of Nations and led the team into the World Cup knockout stages last year in Brazil, but failed to qualify the Super Eagles for the last continental tournament earlier this year in Equatorial Guinea. NFF President Pinnick Amaju confirmed Keshe's imminent return as Super Eagles coach, saying, however, he's yet to sign a contract. The Ghana Football Association spokesperson Ibrahim Sani Dara has a belief in Avram Grant's coaching method and says that the Israel can lead them to win the titles. Grant took the charge of the Black Stars less than a month to the start of the Africa Cup of Nations and rave reviews for finishing second. Ghana missed out on the title by losing 9-8 on penalties. Tara believes that the former Chelsea manager has the requisite coaching credentials to transform the Black Stars. Now in cricket, the South African national cricket team, the Proteus, will arrive later at the Oratambo International Airport. And the Proteus will return from the Cricket World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, where they lost by four wickets in the semi-finals against New Zealand. And the team now is a few minutes to arrive at the Oratambo International Airport. It's only coach Russell Domingo and captain A.P. De Village who touched down first. Domingo says that they are not disappointed about the loss as they took lots of positives from the game. We offer no excuses. Uh, New Zealand played extremely well. We know we maybe missed one or two opportunities, but that's the nature of the game. You look at the commitment of the players during that encounter, the tears they shed after the game. They left everything on the field, and that's all we could have asked for as a management team. Going forward, we'll obviously let things settle down a little bit. We'll have to grimace and bear watching the final on Sunday between Australia and New Zealand. Um, and we'll need to take stock of where we are. And finally, in golf, 22-year-old Frenchman Adrian Sadia leads into the second round of the Trophy Hassan II in Morocco. He is seven under par after an opening 65, one clear of the field. Nick Dyke reports. Sadia is making only his second European Tour start of the season. He started here in style. It helps when you chip in for eagle at the very first hole to move to a bogey-free round, which is close to a career best. He'd shot a 64 in Qatar last year. He's one stroke clear of Dan Gaunt, while Kutsia's on five under par. He's continuing the tremendous form that saw him win in South Africa and trying to play down the desire to get to Augusta. He's tied with Chris Wood, who's shot a best score since returning from breaking his wrist playing tennis last November. And the Scot David Drysdale also fired a 67. Former champions Marcel Seam and David Horsey are also in the hunt. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Jaza Rad. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorra.
Africa Amka na Unai. Well, that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today, Friday 27. From myself, Jazzarar, producers Pubuntu Ramagadza and Elizabeth Lediga, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. You can comment about our show, email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise and Shine Africa. Through to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band across southern Africa. Kanda Bongo Man with a track entitled End the Money, your channel Africa.